0: And welcome to the reading of The Courier for Tuesday, January 17th. And I am your reader, Peter Welch, and you're listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Information Services Network for the Blind and the Disabled. All right, let's take a look at the front page here of The Courier. Makokita CAVE's 911 CALL aired. CALL reveals new info on day of CF family died. The lone 911 call made on the morning of a a triple homicide at at Makokita Caves State Park came from the mother of the man police say was the killer. As the sun rose on the popular park in Jackson County on July 22, two gunshots rang out. A little boy screamed and ran for help. His parents were shot, he said. There was blood. A nearby camper took the boy by the hand hurried toward the uh, campground entranceway and called 911. The contents of that call reveal more what happened at the park than what uh, investigators have been willing to disclose over the past six months despite having concluded the case. He saw his parents were shot. Cecilia Sherwin struggled with the pronunciation of Makokita after several attempts at describing her uh, location, it clicked for the Jackson County 911 dispatcher. She was talking about Makokita Caves, shooting, shooting. Sherwin said, "We heard it this morning, and this kid screaming. He said his parents were shot, and there's blood." The 911 call obtained by the Quad City Times dispatch, uh, Argus, through an open records request to Jackson County, lasts for 23 minutes. The dispatchers heard asking questions of Sherwin and trying to call law enforcement. As he called the park ranger and the police continued to ring, the dispatcher said, come on, just before the ranger's phone went to voicemail. The connection between the dispatcher and Sherwin was briefly lost at one point, but she called back. The dispatcher again put her on hold as he tried to contact help. Nearly 10 minutes after her initial call, The dispatcher asked more questions, including where she was in the park. Exactly. At the entrance, with the little boy, she replied, he was screaming in the tent. We heard the shots. The dispatcher had questions for the boy, too. So Sherwin handed him her phone. Who am I talking to? The dispatcher asked me, the boy replied. Then came some detail. The boy's name was Arlo. He was nine years old. He was camping in a tent with his mom his sister, and his dad. I woke up and there was someone like someone in like black clothes and they had a weapon and my sister was screaming, Arlo said. The dispatcher asked where his dad was. The boy paused and replied, I think they were hurt. He repeated to the dispatcher that the man had a small gun and was wearing black clothes. He then handed the phone back to Sherwin. A few seconds later... She could be heard asking the boy, honey, are you okay? What's wrong? The dispatcher assured them help was coming. A trooper and park ranger aren't too far away, he said. An ambulance was standing by at the park's visitor center. After 23 minutes, the 911 call concluded with the arrival of a park ranger. Asked last week why she took the boy to the entrance of the park to call 911, Sherwin said we were running to safety thinking someone in black was going to shoot us. The discovery of the bodies. Inside a tent near the entranceway to the upper campground at Makokita Caves State Park, police found the bodies of Sarah and Tyler Schmidt, both age 42, and their daughter, six-year-old Lula. Two weeks later, the Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation publicly disclosed the causes of the Schmidt's deaths. Tyler was shot and stabbed. Sarah was stabbed. Lula was shot and strangled. Lula was shot and strangled, and Arlo was the only member of the family from Cedar Falls to escape injury. Anthony Sherwin, age 23, had been camping with his parents, uh, Cecilia and Joe. He was in his own tent. The campground had a total of about a dozen campers, Cecilia Sherwin had told the 911 dispatcher. Anthony Sherwin's body was found near the campground a short distance away, but still inside the park, according to an investigator's remark at a news conference on the day of the killings. In addition to revealing the cause of death, August 4th, the Iowa DCI declared that Sherwin had been the killer. All evidence collected to this point substantiates that Sherwin was the perpetrator of the homicides and acted alone. His parents don't believe it. Neither his character nor the bit of evidence shared with them proves he did it, they said. Cecilia Sherwin said that her son sustained two gunshot wounds. She thinks the first wound have been debilitating and wonders how he managed to shoot himself again. Police have declined to answer any questions and have not publicly released any additional information since the 4th of August. Public records requests are denied. The list of unanswered questions is long, but one in particular bothers Cecilia Sherwin because it seems simple to answer. Was the gun police say was used by her son to commit suicide the same gun that was used in the shootings of Tyler and Lula Schmidt? She and her husband specifically asked one of the lead investigators whether a ballistics match was made. They didn't get an answer, she said. The Quad City Times-Dispatch Argus also filed requests for public records under Iowa's Open Records Law and the Freedom of Information Act. The requests sought incidental reports, investigative documents, crime scene summaries, and autopsy reports. The records you seek are not public, replied Debbie McClung, Strategic Communications Bureau Chief Officer of the Commissioner of Iowa Department of Public Safety. We can share immediate facts and circumstances of this case, which are contained in the press release links, which I've provided for you. McChung, or I should say McClung, excuse me, McClung was asked in an email on, on the 11th of January whether the gun used in the suicide matched the one used in the slangs. She did not respond. The Sherwin's requests for information also have either been denied or ignored. She was able to independently obtain her son's autopsy report, she said, but it only added to her confusion. She knew Anthony was wearing green shorts because she'd given them to him the day before the shooting as she handed out the last of the clean clothes from the family's camping trip. The autopsy listed that the clothing that Anthony was wearing which included the green shorts. To the Sherwins, the clothing distinction is important because Arlo had been insistent that the person who killed his family was wearing black. The reason we want the final report is that we want an independent review of what they say has happened, because we believe Anthony was murdered and did not commit that crime, Cecilia Sherwin says. The people who likely knew Anthony best... His parents say that he wasn't capable of killing and he had no connection whatsoever to the Schmitz. Why would he violently attack them at sunrise? We were told that there was no motive and it was random, she said. Investigative matters aren't the only details that remain under wraps. Police won't even tell the Sherwins where in the park their son's body was found, Cecilia Sherwin says. Why can't we know where our son's last moments on earth were? So we can put a small cross and flowers there, she says. Arlo Schmidt is being raised by extended family, according to reports from his hometown. Cecilia Sherwin regularly thinks of the boy, she said. Well, now let's see what else is going on here on the paper. Reynolds, Governor Reynolds takes Scappell. To Iowa's government. Re elected governor pauses rulemaking, eyes, fewer agencies. In Des Moines, Iowa's state government could soon look decidedly different from it did when Governor Kim Reynolds first took office in 2017. The Republican governor signed into state law many conservative policies on taxes elections, abortion restrictions, and during her tenure, state lawmakers and voters embedded into the state's constitution expanded gun rights. Now, Reynolds is changing the shape of state government itself. She's proposing to restructure state government by streamlining the number of cabinet-level state agencies from 37 to 16. And by executive order, She has placed a four year moratorium on state rule, making the process of adding detailed rules to implement new, or I should say, newly passed state laws. Like any large organization, government is marked by bureaucracy's natural tendency to grow. If that growth isn't constantly checked and rechanneled towards its core function, it quickly takes on a life of its own, Reynolds said this past week. And the governor's annual condition of the state uh, address. Streamed lined state. Reynolds proposed to cut by more than half the number of cabinet-level state agencies will require legislation which may be introduced as early as this week in a, at her office, she said. The proposal would continue an effort already underway. In 2019, she made Debbie Durham the director of both the workforce development and low-income housing departments. And in 2020, made Kelly Garcia, director of both the human services and public health departments. Last year, Reynolds proposed merging the former state human services and public health departments. That merger now is in a multi-year process of being affirmed in state law. The new Department of Health and Human Services affects hundreds of thousands of Iowans, including those on Medicaid. And Reynolds said that Iowa's 37 executive branch cabinet members is significantly more than neighboring states and other states with similar populations and state budgets. However, that number includes not just state department heads, but also heads of state boards and councils. It's a broad group of employees that extends beyond state departments, including the head of appointed boards, including the Iowa Utility Board, the Iowa Lottery Authority, STEM Council, and the Division of Banking. Reynolds' office provided a flowchart of 38 state government agency positions under the governor's control. It includes the Department of Commerce, although the governor's office said it does not count Commerce's uh, director Katie Avriel as a cabinet member, including just department heads. Iowa has 17, that's closer in number to cabinets in neighboring states, and those with similar-sized populations and state budgets, with the exception of Illinois, which range between 15 and 27, according to the council of state governments. The council lists 30 Iowa cabinet members including including the governor. The Kentucky-based nonprofit is at the nation's largest nonpartisan organization serving all three branches of state elected and appointed officials. The governor's office did not provide specifics as to how it would merge or realign cabinet-level departments stating it would release more details once legislation has been introduced. The governor, however, provided a broad outline in her proposed state budget for the state fiscal year that starts on July 1st. Okay, let's take a look. What else is going on here on the front page of the Courier here today? Leaders of the Pack. Thousands volunteer for MLK Day Food Bank event at UNI Dome in Cedar Falls. Thousands of volunteers spent Martin Luther King Jr. Day packing thousands of bags of food as part of the third annual Pack the Dome event. More than 2,000 people volunteered to pack food at the event. According to Barbara Prather, Executive Director for the Northeast Iowa Food Bank, it was part of a partnership between the Food Bank and the University of Northern Iowa. Last year, more than 1,100 volunteers packed 48,000 bags of food at the UNI Dome. This year, Prather says that they expanded their goal to 80,000 bags. The event raises awareness to the community about food insecurity. Prather said that approximately 16 percent of children in northeast iowa experience food insecurity it's an issue her organization has been mounting recently with supply chain issues and inflation it really has because it really has because people are working they're trying to make ends meet but then costs go up 8 to 10% wages haven't gone up to 8 to 10% brother says and so people spend more money on their basic needs the morning started with boxes of food being loaded by student athletes from you and I, according to wrestler Parker Kikirjian. He and his teammates put their competitive streak to work, making a game out of the event. I've come here all three years, and it's just a fun opportunity as a wrestling, as a wrestling team, we probably compete too much, so we're going to try to pack as many boxes as we can, Kikisian said. As we learned from our great coach, Doug Schwab, we love to compete. So we're going to compete and we're going to try to outpack every other team here. U.S. Representative Ashley Hinson, Republican of Iowa, and her sons also were on hand to help pack the food. Last year, she had to miss the event due to COVID. She made it on Monday, stressing that she wanted to instill a spirit of volunteerism in her children. Hinson reflected on the fact that the food being packed was going to people in her district and said, pack the dome goes hand in hand with pursuing policies that will drive down inflation and the cost of living. These are the stories that I've heard for the last two years. It's that people are struggling to put food on the table, feed their families, struggling to pay their utility bills, Hinson says. So anything we can do to provide that little bit of assistance, I think, is really critical. Pack the Dome was split into 10.30 a.m. and 1.30 p.m. shifts. One group volunteering during the early shift was from Target Distribution Center in Cedar Falls, which also provided food for the drive. This is an event where not only we at Target who work there can come, But we can bring our families, and we can bring friends as well, which makes it all the more exciting to volunteer, said Kristen Crucia, Senior Director for the Distribution Center. Target gives back right to our communities, and this is one great way that we're able to do that and involve a lot more people. What else is on the front page? Living the dream in person. MLK Junior Day Banquet makes its triumph, live return to Waterloo. After a two-year hiatus, the traditional MLK Junior Day Banquet came roaring back Sunday night, inspired by local civil rights leader Belinda Cretan Smith. Cretan Smith, a pastor and university professor, encouraged a packed crowd at Electric Park Ballroom to continue working To end injustice. The American dream came at quite an enormous price, and we can't deny it. It isn't until we talk about this stuff that we can be delivered from this stuff. It isn't until we deal with the stuff that we can heal with this stuff, she says. She quoted passages from King's iconic I Have a Dream speech and compared them with current events, a rise in hate crimes, efforts to suppress voting, mass shootings at grocery stores, the war on drugs, disproportionately hurting minority communities. The banquet's theme was the challenge of living the dream in times like these. When have we been in times like these, Creighton Smith asked, until we get out there and make our voices heard. We won't make a change, she added. Her microphone malfunctioned, but she didn't miss a beat, continuing on from projecting her voice throughout the building until she was handed a new mic. She said she's encouraged by seeing the young people and white suburban women take off their aprons and take to the streets as part of the Black Lives Matter movement in recent years. I have a dream that one day our communities won't be so racially segregated. I have a dream that there won't be any poor communities because poverty will be eliminated. I have a dream today that folks will stand by side by side to speak truth to power. She said, we won't be afraid to say the word black. We won't be ashamed to say the word white. We will call it what it is and bring about change because we are dealing with this. The Martin Luther King Jr. Day Banquet, a staple of the Waterloo community, for more than 40 years went virtual during the coronavirus pandemic in 2021 and 2022. The event is organized by Social Action Incorporated, and proceeds from the banquet go towards the organization's youth programs. All right, let's turn the page. Now we're at the Northeast Iowa Area Escapades. Here are just a few of the events and goings-on worth checking out in Northeast Iowa. On Wednesday, uh, the 18th of January, they'll be Spinning Toward Good Health. Did your diet spin off track during the holidays? Well, you're not alone. Follow through on your New Year's resolution to get healthier by joining CVC Indoor Spin. The next class presented by Cedar Valley Cyclists is Wednesday at the Cedar Valley Sportsplex, 300 Jefferson Street. Spinning is from 6 to 7 p.m. The class meets weekly on Wednesdays through March, and the weekly cost is only $5, so that's not bad. Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, January 20th through the 22nd, BHCT presents the pinballs. You can't always choose where life takes you. Especially when you're a foster kid. And Black Hawk Children's Theater, first show for 2023, Betsy Breyer's classic, The Pinballs, is being performed at Black Box McElroy the Theater in the WCP BHCT Walker Building at 224 Commercial Street. It's a play about three foster kids who become friends and start to learn how to take control of their own lives. Performances are at 7 p.m. January 20th and 2 p.m. January 21st and 22nd. Seating is limited. Tickets are $15 for adults and $10 for children. Available at the following phone number, 319-291-4494. Group orders can be made at 319-235-0367. You can also go online at www. WCPBHCt dot org. All right, what else here? Let's see. We got uh, oh, we got a fat bike race uh, coming up here. Fat back. It's called the Fat Bike Race rolls ahead, and that's on Saturday, the twenty-first of January. The Iowa Games uh, Fat Bike Race hits the snow trampled course Saturday at George White we- State Park. 36.59, I think that's pronounced with, excuse me, with road in Waterloo. The race was rescheduled from an earlier date. The route is similar to cycle cross races and laps and will be short five to ten minutes with each citizen or beginner and open experienced divisions are offered. The event begins at 1 p.m. on site registration and will be accepted for $30. Saturday, the 21st of January. The Gift author to give book talk author Sherry Dargeen, uh, Dar, I, I guess Dargon, excuse me, Dargon, will give a brief book talk on Saturday at the Hearst Center Center for the Arts at 304 West Searle Boulevard. That's C E E R L E Y Searle Boulevard in Cedar Falls. She will talk about her inspirations for The Gift, the first novel in her multi-book series titled Grandmother's Treasures. She'll also sign copies of the book. The event is from 2 to 4 p.m., and it's free, and it's open to the public. What else? Saturday, the 21st, jazz is back at Bar Winslow. A fresh new season has started at Bar Winslow, featuring some of the area's best jazz musicians. On Saturday, Bob W- Washoot and Mike Conrad will perform from 7.30 to 10 p.m. Bar Winslow is a Prohibition-inspired craft cocktail bar located in historic Black Hawk Hotel at 115 Main Street in Cedar Falls. Okay, so that's what's going on uh, f- for Wednesday through Saturday. Okay, what else is going on? In Waterloo, Sunday house fire is on, on is in, under investigation. Waterloo authorities are investigating a fire that damaged a vacant home Sunday morning. A passerby called 911 after spotting smoke coming from the 431 Dawson Street area around 9.30 a.m. Crews with Waterloo Fire Rescue found a fire in the living room area and extinguished the flames. No injuries were exp- were reported. The home is owned by I- Isaiah Hill of Fort Dodge, according to property records. It was vacant and the windows had been boarded up with plywood. The home is about four blocks from a vacant home at 232 Center Street that caught fire on the 9th of December. Okay, what else do we have here? In New Hampton, a man has been charged in an overdose death. A rural New Hampton man accused of a 2020 overdose death has been indicted on federal opioid charges. Grand jury on Thursday handed up an indictment charging Tehran Scott Liechenberg, age 23, with one count of distribution of fentanyl resulting in death. During a Friday court appearance, he pleaded not guilty and was uh, detained pending a further hearing. Trial was tentatively been set for March in U.S. District Court in Cedar Rapids. Court records indicate that the charge is linked to the death of a 19-year-old 19, 19 Jace Cathamel of Iona. Lechenberg and his father are also named as defendants in a wrongful death lawsuit filed by Kajamal's estate in Chicksaw County District Court in July. Kajamal had been at Lechenberg's home on the north uh, Wapsie Street northwest of New Hampton on the uh, 30th of July 2020, where he was provided with drugs according to court records. As a result of taking the controlled substance, Jace showed signs of an adverse drugs reaction, including but not limited to looking sick, sweating with bloodshot eyes, snoring, and foaming at the nose, the suit alleges. People at the home noticed his condition and checked out and checked on him rather, but didn't seek medical attention for hours later before Lechenberg drove him into town where they met an ambulance that was called according to the lawsuit. The ambulance crew declared Kajamal dead. The suit alleges that the drug had been misrepresented and that Kajamal took it because he thought it was safe. Court records also indicate that Lechenberg had another run-in with authorities involving opioids months later. Bremer County Sheriff's deputies were called to a report of an Audi passenger car on fire on Reno Avenue around 11.55 p.m. on the 11th of October 2020. The driver, Lechenberg, was nearby. He was lethargic and had slurred speech, but a breath didn't show any indication of alcohol. The records go on to state, During the investigation, deputies received information that he was coming from a home where a fentanyl overdose had been reported, courts record state. Further details were not available at this time. Okay, let's read uh, an article here in the Nation and World section of the paper before we do the obituaries. Uh, This is a um, Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, article. Daughter calls for action. Father's legacy must be more than quotes, she says at service. America has honored Martin Luther King Jr. with a federal holiday for nearly four decades, yet still hasn't fully embraced and acted on the lessons from the same civil rights leader, his youngest daughter said on Monday, the Reverend Bernice King, who leads the King Center in Atlanta said leaders especially politicians too often cheapen her father's legacy into a comfortable and convenient king offering easy platitudes we love to quote king in and around the the holiday but then we refuse to live king 365 days of the year she declared at the uh, at the service at uh, Ebenezer Baptist Church where her father once preached the service sponsored by the center and held at Ebenezer annually, headlined observances of the 38th federal king holiday, king who was gunned down in Memphis in 1968, as he advocated for better pay and working conditions for the city's sanitation workers, would have celebrated his 94th birthday on Sunday her voice rising and falling in cadences similar to her father's. Bernice King bemoaned institutional and individual racism, economic and health care inequities, police violence, a militarized international order, hardline immigration structures, and the climate crisis. She said she's exhausted, exasperated, and frankly disappointed to hear her father's words about justice, quoted so extensively along so little progress. He was God's prophet sent to the, this nation and even the world to guide us and forewarn us. A, a prophetic word calls for an inconvenience because it challenges us to change our hearts, our minds, and our behavior. Bernice King goes on to say Dr. King, the inconvenient king, puts some demands on us to change our ways. President Joe Biden addressed the MLK Breakfast Monday, hosted in Washington by the Reverend Al Sharpton's National Action Network. Sharpton got his start as a civil rights organizer in his teens as a youth director of an anti-poverty project of King's Southern Christian Leadership Conference. This is a time for choosing, Biden says. Repeating themes from a speech he delivered Sunday at Ebenezer, at the invitation of of Senator Raphael Warnock, the senior pastor at Ebenezer, who recently won re-election to a full term at Georgia's first black U.S. Senator. We will choose democracy over autocracy. Or our community over chaos? Love or hate? Biden asked Monday. These are the questions of our time that I ran for president to try to help answer. Dr. King's life and legacy in my view, shows the way forward. Okay, let's go to the obituaries, but before doing that, let me just remind you uh, very quickly that you are listening to the reading of The Courier here on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Information Services Network for the Blind. And this is Tuesday, and it is the 17th of January, and I am your narrator, Peter Welch. Jeffrey Duncan, age 74, of Evansdale, has passed. The family is planning a celebration of life to be held at a future date. Dorothy Wilmot, age 83, of Weverly, has passed. And there will be a funeral service, which will be held at 10.30 a.m. on Wednesday, the 18th of January, at Dahl Van Hove Shoof Funeral Home. Visitation will be from 4 p.m. until 7 p.m. on Tuesday, 17th of January, at the Funeral Home, resuming at 9 30, excuse me, on Wednesday at the Funeral Home until the time of service. Burial at Cedar Valley Memorial Gardens will happen at a later date. Memorials may be directed to the family for a future charitable donation. Sandra Ocampo, Age 71 of Waterloo has passed away and memorial service will be at 10:30 a.m. on Thursday, 19th of January at our Redeemer Lutheran Church at 9th and Bluff Streets in Cedar Falls with a visitation 1 hour prior to the service. Burial is at a later date. You can send online condolences to www.richardsonfuneralservice.com. Calm. John Van Hove has passed at the age of 88 of urbandale And there's going to be a service uh, with a burial. Let me first uh, tell you that the uh, funeral services will be held at 10 a.m. on Wednesday, the 18th of January, at the New Hope Assembly of God in urbandale the Burial will take place at 1:30 p.m. at the East Friesland Presbyterian Church Cemetery in rural Ackley. Visitation will be an hour before the service in lieu of flowers. Memorials may be directed to the Animal Rescue League. Toys for Tots or the Steamboat Rock Historical Society. Funeral arrangements are under the guidance of the Tsutsima Funeral Home in Ackley. Dale Hovenga has passed been Funeral and Cremation Services in Clarksville is in charge of the arrangements. There isn't, at, re, at least right now, any information about any service that will be held for Dale. Uh, Lauren Eadwald, age 92, has passed at the Sunrise Hill Care Center in Trayer. And the family is requesting that memorials be sent to Trayer Ambulance Service. The funeral will be on Wednesday, the 18th of uh, January at 10.30 a.m. at Overton Funeral Home in Traer. Military rites will be conducted by the Traer American Legion. The visitation will be on Tuesday, the 17th of January from 5 to 7 p.m. at Overton Funeral Home in Traer. And finally, Leroy Westemere has passed um, at the um, age of 81 and services for him will be, uh, let's see, I'm looking here quickly, will be at the White Funeral Home at Jessup, Iowa, and they're in charge of arrangements for his funeral. The funeral service will be at 10.30 a.m. on Friday, January 20th, at, and I'll spell this, uh, A-T-H-A-N-A-S-I-U-I-U-S, Catholic Church in Jessup with burial, at the cemetery, Jessup with military rights are conducted by Pomp Shear American Legion Post 342 of Jessup. The um, It will be uh, at the Athenasius Cemetery in Jessup. All right. Let's take a look now at what else is going on here in the paper. Let's go back to the Nation and the World section of the paper. Well, first, uh, let's, let's read uh, the digest area. Yellen to meet with Chinese peer. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen will meet with Chinese uh, counterpart Vice Premier Lai He on Wednesday in Switzerland to discuss economic developments between the two nations. The Zurich talks will be a follow-up to the November meeting between President Joe Biden and China's President Xi Jinping on the sidelines of the Group of 20 summit in Beili, Indonesia until world leaders agreed to empower key senior officials to maintain communication. Strains between the world's two leading economies have been growing despite their trade ties. The Biden administration has blocked the sale of advanced computer chips to China and is considering a ban on investment in some Chinese tech companies, possibly undermining a key economic goal that the Chinese president has set for his country. Statements by the Democratic president say that the U.S. will defend Taiwan against a Chinese invasion have increased those tensions. Baby, teen, mom among six killed. In Visalia, California, six people, including a 17-year-old mother and her six-month-old baby, were killed in a shooting early Monday at a home in Central California. and Authorities are searching for at least two suspects, sheriff officials say. Deputies responded by 330 AM to reports of shots fired at the residence uh, and just east of Visalia, the Tulare County Sheriff's Office said. Deputies found two victims dead in the street and a third person fatally shot in the doorway. Sheriff Mike Bar- Bardrokes said three more victims were found inside the home, including a man who was still alive but later died at a hospital. Sheriff said that investigators believe that there's gang connections to the killings. Briefly, meth contamination. For the second time in a month, a Colorado library closed its doors to clean up methamphetamine contamination. Officials in the Denver suburb of Englewood shut down the city library Wednesday within a couple hours of getting test results, city spokesman Chris Harguth said. Mafia arrest, Italy's number one fugitive, Matteo Messina Denaro, a convicted mafia boss who ordered some of the nation's most heinous killings, was arrested on Monday at a private clinic in Sicily after three decades on the run, Italian pre, uh, paramilitary police said. Germany, Christine Lambrecht, Germany's much-criticized defense minister, announced her resignation on Monday after a series of missteps while her department steers the massive project of modernizing the country's military and oversees expanding weapons deliveries to Ukraine. Shooting charges. Authorities filed aggravated murder charges this week against Martin Muniz, age 41, who was accused of having shot and killed his father, sister, and nephew, as well as another man and critically wounded an eight-year-old girl in a Cleveland home last week, authorities said. Munez was scheduled to be arraigned on Wednesday in Cleveland Municipal Court. Former king, the casket carrying the former and last monarch of Greece, emerged from Athens Metropolitan Cathedral to a crowd Monday after a funeral service attended by ro- royalty from across Europe. The casket was loaded into a hearse for the trip to Tatoi, a former royal estate north of Athens, where Constantine was to be buried near his parents and ancestors, and finally in news briefs, coal protest: the last two climate activists holed up beneath a German village due to be destroyed for the expansion of a nearby coal mine left the site on Monday. The activists remained inside a self-dug tunnel for days, in a bid to prevent heavy equipment. From being brought in to bulldoze the hamlet of Lutherzath west of Cologne, Russian airstrike deaths rise to forty. People living there say that the building didn't house any military facilities. In Ukraine, Ukrainian emergency crews on Monday sifted through what was left of a pro apartment building that had been destroyed by a Russian missile placing bodies from one of the war's deadliest single attacks in months in black bags and gingerly carrying them across steep piles of rubble. Authorities said that the death toll from Saturday's strike rose to 40 and that 30 people remained missing on Monday. About 1,700 people lived in the multi-story building and searched and rescue crews have worked nonstop since the missile strike. To locate victims and survivors, the regional administration said that 39 people had been re- rescued and at least 75 were wounded. The reported death toll put it among the deadliest attacks on Ukrainian civilians since before the summer, according to the Associated Press Frontline War Crimes Watch Project. Residents said that the apartment tower didn't house any military facilities. The European Union's foreign policy chief, Joseph Borrell, called the strike, and others like it, inhuman aggression because it directly targeted civilians. Asked about the strike on Monday, Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov said that the Russian military doesn't target residential buildings and suggested that the Dnipro building was hit as a result of Ukrainian air defense actions. Searchers retrieve voice data recorders Authorities fear that all aboard flight in Nepal were killed in the crash. In Nepal, search teams retrieved the flight data and cockpit voice recorders Monday of a passenger plane that plummeted into a gorge on approach to a new airport in the foothills of the Himalayas. Officials said as investigators looked for the cause of Nepal's deadliest plane crash in 30 years, At least 69 of the 72 people aboard were killed. And officials believe that three missing are also dead. Rescuers combed through the debris, scattered down a 1,000-foot-deep gorge uh, for them. Many of the passengers on Sunday's flight were returning home to Pokhara, though the city is also popular with tourists since it's the gateway to the Annapurna Circuit hiking trail. It's still not clear what caused the crash, which took place less than a minute's flight from the airport on a mild day with little wind. In footage taken by a passenger uh, out of a window, as the plane came in for landing, buildings, roads, and greenery are visible below. The video shows a violent jolt and a series of jerky images accompanied by yelling before flames fill the screen. The twin-engine ATR-72 aircraft operated by Nepal's airlines, was completing the 27-minute flight from the capital of Kathmandu to Pokhara. It was carrying 68 passengers as well as four crew members. All right, let's see. Let's take a look at something else here. Let's now um, go back to L.A. here. Um, uh, Of course, I'm sure you're, you're certainly aware of all the flooding and all of the horrendous Storms that uh, California has been getting. And this article is called Another Storm Dumps Rain and Snow. Travel Discouraged Avalanche Warning Issued for Central uh, Sierra. the ninth uh, atmospheric river in a three-week series of major winter storms churned through California on Monday, leaving mountain driving dangerous and flooding risk high near swollen rivers, even as the sun came out in some areas. Heavy snow fell across the Sierra Nevada, and the National Weather Service discouraged travel. Interstate 80, a key highway from from the San Francisco Bay Area to Lake Tahoe ski resorts, reopened with chain requirements after periodic weekend closures because of whiteout conditions. If you must travel, be prepared for dangerous travel conditions, significant travel delays, road closures, the Weather Service office in Sacramento said on Twitter. The University of California, Berkeley Central Sierra Snow Lab tweeted on Monday morning that it recorded 49.6 inches of new snow since Friday. A backcountry avalanche warning was issued for the Central Sierra, including the greater Tahoe area. A barrage of atmospheric river storms has dumped rain and snow on California since late December, cutting power to thousands, swamping roads, toppling trees, unleashing debris flows, triggering landslides. Monday's system was relatively weak compared with earlier storms, but flooding and mudslide risks remained because the state was so saturated. Forecasters go on go on to say. The sun came out in San Francisco where 20.3 inches of rain has fallen at the city's airport since the 1st of October, when California typically begins recording rainfall for the year. The yearly average for the water year is 19.6 inches. So we've surpassed the yearly total with eight more months to go, the San Francisco Weather Service Office tweeted. Up to two more inches of rain fell Sunday in the Soak-Sacramento Valley area where residents of Wilton and surrounding communities were warned to prepare to leave if the Kosum's River rose further. The swollen Salinas River swamped farmland in Monterey County. To the east, flood warnings were still in effect for Merced County in the agricultural Central Valley, where Governor Gavin Newsom visited on Saturday. Newsom on Monday signed... Executive order to further bolster the state's emergency storm response and help communities that suffered damage. President Joe Biden declared a major disaster in the state and ordered federal aid to supplement local recovery efforts. That is just unbelievable about what's happened out there. Going from, you know, an amazingly horrendous drought to this, talk about nature trying to equalize things again. And speaking of rain, let's take a look at the weather forecast here. Cedar Valley's five-day forecast today, cloudy and breezy and colder, uh, with a high of about 35. Tonight, low clouds and wind, and it will be between 7 and 14 miles per hour, and it'll be 26 degrees. Wednesday, you get snow and rain, up to an inch possible. It'll be a high of 37, a low of 27. On Thursday, a little morning snow, and that will be a high of 33 and then down to 19 degrees. Friday, it will be low clouds, and it will be a high of 30 and a low of 21 degrees. And then on Saturday, clouds and sunshine, high of 31 and a low of 19 degrees again. Okay, let's keep moving on here. Let's take a look at the entertainment section, what to watch. Um, The Rookie on ABC at 7 p.m., in death notice, Officer Nolan and Selena are enlisted to stand guard at a hospital when a dangerous prisoner must have surgery, and the suspect and the suspect there is more to it than meets the eye. Meanwhile, Aaron and Harper uh, assist to help investigating a string of home robberies. And also at 7 p.m., The Resident on Fox at 7 p.m., medical drama. The Resident concludes season six tonight with the final episode, All Hands on Deck, in which a heavy storm causes a helicopter crash. And Sammy comes into the emergency room with a high fever. And here's a new series, Night Court, NBC at 7 p.m., This follow up to NBC's 1984 to 1992 sitcom Night Court stars Melissa Rauch as eternally optimistic Judge Abby Stone, who follows in the footsteps of her revered late father. On PBS at 7 p.m., Finding Your Roots with Henry Louis Gates Jr. In Secret Lives with Henry Louis Gates, or I should say Louis Gates Jr., helps comedians Carol Burnett and Nicey Nash decode scandals in their roots, exploring secrets that their ancestors sought to conceal. On NBC, also at 8 p.m., New Amsterdam, this is the series finale. The medical drama comes to an end after five seasons with two back-to-back episodes tonight. First, in right place, Max and Wilder face a dilemma over approvals for a revolutionary cancer drug as Max learns a secret about his own bout with cancer. Reynolds goes the extra mile to correct a medical situation, and Iggy tries to desperately help a woman in need, but finds that the system is working against him. Then everyone's story reaches a surprising yet inevitable conclusion. In the series finale episode, How Can I Help? Now, let's see. Also, PBS American Experience. Zora Neale Hurston. Claiming a Space. On PBS at 8 p.m., this biography explores the life of author Zoa Neale Hurston, whose groundbreaking anthropological work would challenge assumptions about race, gender, and cultural superiority. So that's interesting. And also, uh, don't forget about catching a classic. And these are movies that are on TCM, Turner Classic Movies. And the star of the month is Marion Davies. And things begin at 7 p.m. The movie is called The Bachelor Father. And then the next one is 5 and 10. Then that follows Blondie of the Follies. And then Polly of the Circus. And finally, oh, excuse me, no. And also then Going Hollywood. And then finally Operator 13. So lots of good movies there on the TCM channel. What else is going on here on the paper today in history? Today's highlight. On January 17, 1961, President Dwight D. Eisenhower delivered his farewell address in which he warned against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought by the military-industrial complex. On this date in 1917, Denmark ceded the Virgin Islands to the U.S. for $25 million. In 1944 during World War II, Allied forces launched the first of four battles for Monte Cassino in Italy. The Allies were ultimately successful. 1950, the Great Brinks Robbery took place as seven masked men held up a Brinks garage in Boston, stealing 1.2 million dollars in cash and $1.5 million in checks that uh, and money orders. Although the entire gang was caught, only part of the loot was recovered. In 1955, the submarine USS Nautilus made its first nuclear-powered test run from its birth in Croton, Connecticut. In 1966, the Simon and Garfunkel album, Sounds of Silence, was released by Columbia Records. Boy, that takes us back a long ways. At least it does for me. In 1994, the 6.7-magnitude Northridge earthquake struck Southern California, killing at least 60 people, according to the U.S. Geological Survey. In 1995, more than 6,000 people were killed when an earthquake, when an earthquake excuse me, with a magnitude of 7.2 devastated the city of Kobe, Japan, or it might be pronounced Kobe, Japan, in 2016, Iran released three Americans, former U.S. Marine Amir Hekmarty, Washington Post reporter Jason Rezaian, and Pastor Saeed Abini as part of a prisoner swap that also netted Tehran some $100 billion in sanction relief. In 2020, the U.S. health officials announced that they would begin screening airline passengers from central China for the new coronavirus. People traveling from Wuhan, China, would have their temperatures checked and be asked about symptoms. And 10 years ago, Algerian helicopters and special forces stormed a gas plant in the Stony Plains of the Sahara to wipe out Islamist militants and free hostages from at least 10 countries. Nearly all the militants militants were killed. At least 40 hostages died in the standoff. Oprah Winfrey's own network broadcast the first of a two-part interview with uh, Lance Armstrong, in which the disgraced cyclist told Winfrey he had also started doping in the mid-1990s. So there's that. Five years ago, snow, ice, and record-breaking cold closed runways, highways, schools, and government offices across the South. At least 15 people were killed. We have just about run out of time here. Um, There's an article under Health, it's called the seven things that your dentist wants you to know. I can't get into it now at this point, but what it does is it discusses gum disease dangers. Brushing harder or longer isn't necessarily better. Flossing is optional, but cleaning between isn't. Your doctor isn't only checking your teeth and gums. That's another section. Going to the dentist when you're pregnant is recommended. Menopause can affect your mouth. Chewing sugar-free gum can't substitute for brushing. Uh, and that, like I said, is in the health section of the paper. Anyway, that just about does it here for the reading of The Courier January 17th. Uh, and I am your reader, Peter Welch, and you have been reading, or you have been listening rather to the reading of The Courier on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Information Services Network for the Blind. I want to say thank you for giving me a listen here, and we'll talk again soon. Bye-bye, everybody. Thanks again.